Hitler had certainly invaded the Soviet Union with the ex very explicit intention of this being a very different sort of war. He explicitly stated that the urban population of the Soviet Union would be regarded as surplus and would simply have to die in order to release sufficient agricultural produce to feed Germany and Central Europe. An excerpt from today's guest, who's written a book about the defeat of the German army in the Ukraine at the hands of the Russians. Eastern Front expert and author Prit Batar is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's guest has written extensively on the Eastern Front in both World War I and World War II. He is a former doctor and astrophotographer. His latest book is called The Reckoning, The Defeat of Army Group South, 1944. And all the way from Scotland, author Prit Batar joins us now. Prit, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we're honored. Before we get underway, I just want to reference a review. The Reckoning is vivid history, the tragic Eastern Front brought to life through the widest range of Russian and German sources I've ever read. Bravo, Peter Kadic Adams. And uh, Adams noted the first-person accounts as well. That's, it's a very kind review from uh, Peter, but um, it, it's always been um, a particular um, thing of mine that a lot of history becomes quite inaccessible and difficult to engage with if it's at too high a level where you perhaps you may get something about the commanders, but largely it's about movements of large groups of men around huge landscapes. So in order to anchor it at the personal level, I think that's a very important thing in order to make the story more real and more engaging and to give readers a feel for what the reality on the ground was like. And it was uh, gruesome in, uh, on occasion. Indeed. Uh, some of the accounts I read in the book. Now, the book is called Reckoning, obviously, and speaks to the day of reckoning for the German army, especially the SS on the Eastern Front. In 1944, the Red Army was seeking vengeance and showing no mercy. Speak to the reasons for this from earlier in the war. I think it's a collision of several different factors um, coming together that result in this enormous appetite for revenge. Uh, Hitler had certainly invaded the Soviet Union with the ex very explicit intention of this being a very different sort of war. This wasn't about knocking out a rival power. It was about the, ex the destruction of the Soviet Union and its transformation into uh, a series of colonies uh, which would make Germany immune to naval blockade forever um, and would give it unlimited resources and uh, room for its population to grow. Um, in that scheme of things, uh, he explicitly stated that the, uh, the urban population of the Soviet Union would be regarded as surplus and would simply have to die in order to release sufficient agricultural produce to feed uh, Germany and Central Europe. Um, and as soon as the occupied territories uh, came under German control, um, the killings began on a scale that even by the standards of the Second World War was truly horrific. Um, at first, they particularly targeted the Jews, um, but also Soviet prisoners of war in the opening months were treated um, appallingly and were simply allowed to starve to death in huge numbers. Um, as the tide turned um, and 
uh, as the Red Army and the Soviet Union became more aware of what had been happening, it's perfectly understandable that so many of its uh, personnel um, had such a strong appetite for revenge, particularly against the SS, who they identified as the main perpetrators of these crimes. The reality is that pretty much all of the Wehrmacht was involved. I think there's also an, an, another narrative to this, which is perhaps sometimes slightly glossed over, and that is that it suited Stalin very much to portray um, Nazi Germany as this phenomenally ferocious and inhuman foe of the Soviet people, um, in that it allowed him then a pretty free hand to deal with dissent within the Soviet Union, to create this, this great war myth of the different ethnicities within the Soviet Union coming together to fight the terrible fascist invader. Um, and all of this played out not only at the time in the propaganda that was passed to the soldiers to motivate them to keep fighting, but also in the years that then followed. That's um, similar to how the United States portrayed the Japanese as, as inhuman. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's something that we sometimes forget in the West that actually it's, it's very much a nature of war. And we see it even more recently with the portrayal of um, the opponents of the West in Iraq and in Afghanistan in a manner that, that tr almost um, reduces them to being less than human. And I think it's, it's, it is part and parcel of the whole psychology of war, that it's, uh, it is perhaps just something that um, mankind has always done. Yeah, I agree. Well, paint a picture of the military strength of Army Group South in 1944. Were they experienced veterans or new recruits? What were they composed of? I think the answer is um, yes to both of those. There was a hard core of veterans who had survived um, and had endured several years of war. These were shrinking in number, even though um, even though the very act of survival improves your chances of survival in the next battle, if you're still losing a, a few percent on, in every major engagement, even the most hardened veterans are going to to die. And but and all the way through the the years of stalemate and then retreat across the Soviet Union, the German army was very very heavily dependent upon the expertise of its mobile forces. Um, they, in turn, were very much dependent upon the ability of people at relatively junior level. So I'm talking of platoon and company commanders, even section commanders, being able to step up and command units one or even two levels above their official grade uh, so that they could fill in if there were casualties, they could improvise and they could execute plans with a degree of flexibility that actually even the Western armies struggled to match. The problem is that as you start losing those personnel um, and also you, you have coming down from above increasingly rigid imposition of orders, it becomes much harder for those individuals, however skillful they are, to exercise their abilities. And moreover, with a larger and larger proportion of uh, the manpower made up of relatively new recruits, um, relatively inexperienced, particularly in the brutal conditions of the Eastern Front, and also already to an extent uh, lacking some of the morale of the existing veterans, because you have to remember that these the, the new drafts arriving through 1943 and 1944 brought with them 
the stories of the homeland. Um, many of the veterans on the Eastern Front hadn't seen the devastation of German cities at the hands of Western air forces. Mm. And suddenly there are these young guys telling them, you know, the country's being laid waste behind us. And, and all of this has, a, has an enormous negative effect. So purely in terms of personnel, it's a very, very mixed bag. You have some very, very skilled, very experienced men. You still have this very hardcore of highly professional uh, leaders at all levels, but they're beginning to run out. And there's a limit to how long you can keep on relying on those guys. I can imagine the men hearing the destruction that's going on in the country. I can imagine the feeling. Talking about the command structure, uh, Field Marshal Manstein had a difficult relationship with Hitler, especially in 1943. What were some of the issues they struggled with? Well, it's an interesting thing because so much of the, the Manstein legend is built very much on his personal memoirs. Um, and in some respects, those memoirs are as unreliable as most memoirs. Um, uh, there are elements in there, for example, many of the, the bitter arguments he describes with uh, Hitler. It's worth bearing in mind that there was no one else present. There was just him and Hitler. So we're very much taking his word for the, uh, you know, what happened. And I dare say, like anybody in that position, that he would he would certainly have been tempted, shall we say, to paint himself in as favourable a position as possible. Nonetheless, the reality for uh, Manstein on the front was that in order to stop the Red Army as Hitler wanted him to stop them, he needed far more resources than he had available. And he repeatedly made requests for, I need this many divisions uh, made available to me if I'm to stop. The only other way that I can uh, achieve this is by giving up ground to a shorter battle line in order to free up resources and also trading space for time in order to do that. Um, from Hitler's point of view, uh, there was no question of giving up more and more territory, particularly as he regarded some of the industrial resources that were being lost and, and the uh, raw material resources in particular as absolutely essential to the German war effort. And his uh, underlying principle, if you like, remained one of obdurate defence in the East while waiting for the opportunity to deliver a killing blow to an invasion in the West and then turning east in strength. Now, the same I would make the same criticism of Manstein as you could make of Modell in late 1944. There is little point in, point in saying, I can only continue holding out if you provide me with, I don't know, 30 fresh divisions plus um, all the ammunition, when you know full well that those resources don't exist. Right. I think... In a way, the arguments that Manstein describes in his book and that many of the German generals describe also reveals their deeply embedded reluctance uh, to step beyond the purely operational military view of the world. If, if the reality of it was that they could no longer hold the front line and they were going to go backwards, and that was their solution, and Hitler, on the other hand, was saying, if you go backwards and lose, for example, the manganese mines around Nikolaev, etc., that is going to cost us the war. Then surely the logical conclusion was this was no longer a war that could be won. In which case, um, as uh, field commanders responsible for the lives of tens or hundreds of thousands of men, they had an obligation 
and a responsibility to those men, which I don't think the German high command or the higher officers ever really grasped, or very few of them did. And instead, they, they chose to evade that in a number of ways by sticking to this belief that their oath precluded them from anything like that. Whereas the reality was, you know, they weren't just Hitler's soldiers, they were soldiers of Germany, and surely their ultimate loyalty should have been to the German people and to the soldiers in their own ranks. And I think they, they, they kind of let their own guys down in that respect. Thanks for listening to the program. I hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description. Each purchase helps support local bookstores, and that's always a good thing. I'm Robert Child. We've got some great guests coming up in November. His book is called The Last Viking, the true story of King Harold Hadrada. And Don Hallway joins us now. I've wanted to write about Harold Hadrada ever since I first heard his, heard his story as a kid. Uh, he fought from Scandinavia to Russia, uh, Constantinople, the Holy Lands, Sicily. He didn't start from quite nothing, but carved himself a kingdom by basically the strength of his sword arm. I mean, he's just a Viking's Viking. The film is called Sixth of June, and Ryland Soroff, one of the producers of this extraordinary documentary, joins us now. Our hope with the film is that when we were making it, it was leading up to the 75th anniversary, and we realized, you know, it doesn't matter what happens with the film or where it was distributed or who got on board or awards that it, you know, we might have received or places that the film was screened. It was really just about how can we impact these people who gave us so much. His book is called Just Another Day in Vietnam, and Colonel Keith Nightingale joins us now. I triggered, or my little element has triggered a guard, and he was probably 20 meters in front of me, and I can remember it frozen in my mind today, the cone of fire from his AK at me, and I just instinctively reached up, and I had it on automatic and hit him, and he had a grenade vest on uh, with his little stick grenades, and it blew up. And I can just remember the cone of fire and then the explosion from him. Uh, you know, that got us started. I hope you can join me for these guests and more every Wednesday morning. Point of the Spear. So we have four Ukrainian fronts uh, stretching across the whole of Ukraine. Uh, so from north to south, uh, Fatutin and uh, Konyev command the, the two northern groups. Um, then there's Malinovsky and Tolbukin um, in, on the two southern groups. And overseeing all of this is Zhukov, uh, um, the hero of the Battle of Moscow, the man who claimed the credit, to my mind, not entirely correctly for Stalingrad. Um, and he was, if you like, uh, one of the troubleshooters that Stalin would send out to coordinate um, fronts that were in, in a particular sector. Um, by this stage of the war, all of these officers are tried and trusted. They've proved their worth. They've come through the crucible of the, of the middle years of the war. Um, and just like uh, their army commanders below them and below them in, in turn, the, uh, the corps and division commanders, these are all men who have learned the hard way how to fight and win on the Eastern Front. Um, and they have in most respects, in, in most regards, they have a pretty good feel for the occasions when they just have to resort 
to the bludgeon and smash the German army. And when there are times that they can, you know, to use a, a sporting parlance, where they can move the ball sideways until they just run the defence ragged and then can exploit a weakness. Um, and Stalin, uh, completely in contrast to Hitler, is moving in, in the other direction. He's much more willing to listen to his commanders and to give them the leeway to innovate and to improvise. Um, and he's not going to insist on imposing his will on the occasions when he attempts to. Um, the field commanders are quite capable of arguing back with him um, and holding their ground on it. Yeah, that was one of my questions, if Stalin was a hands-on commander-in-chief over the army. Well, he was in many respects. Um, and, you know, pretty much every major operation, well, every major operation, in fact, required his approval. But he would accept input from uh, his field commanders. So, for example, the great battle of um, 1944 that isn't covered in this book because it falls in, in Belarus, which is uh, Operation Bagration that tore apart the, the central part of the German front line. Um, in the planning for that, at one point, um, uh, Stalin was insistent on a single thrust to capture a major city. Um, Rokossovsky, whose front was going to be in, involved, said we should launch a pincer movement because it'll be easier, it'll be more effective, and it'll cost fewer casualties. Stalin insisted on the single thrust, and then at one point smiled and left the room and, and um, said, well, think about this. And while he was absent, some of the other officers attempted to put pressure on Rokossovsky, saying, you're going to have to agree with the boss on this. But Rokossovsky stood his ground. And when Stalin came back, he said, no, I still think a pincer is the way to go. And Stalin just nodded and smiled and said, fine, OK, on your responsibility, so be it. So he was, you know, I, I imagine Rokossovsky might have paid a price for that yeah. had it gone wrong. Um, but nevertheless, Stalin was prepared to listen to the guys in the front line it, it, almost in proportion to the, to the way that Hitler was no longer prepared to accept that sort of information. Yeah, yeah, it sounds that way. You mentioned in the book the Red Army learned lessons from the successes and failures during the war. What did the army carry forward after World War II? It's a very interesting question, and probably of the, the questions you sent me, this is the one that's exercised me the most, really. Um, and I think I would I would say that there were there were two strategic consequences that went forward that had a huge effect on the Cold War years. One is, if you like, the military strategic consequence, and the other is, if you like, the political strategic consequence. Um, the political strategic consequence first was very much driven around this uh, national memory of devastation, of over 20 million dead, of a country that was... Uh, that had huge damage inflicted upon it by the invader, and therefore a strong determination never to fight a major war again on Soviet territory, that in future, if we're going to be attacked, we're going to do this on someone else's soil. That then goes hand in hand with um, the Red Army that was then transformed into the Soviet Army post-war, um, that by the end of the war was very much... Um, an offensive war machine that had driven the Germans back across the occupied Soviet Union and across Eastern Europe to Berlin and beyond. And it, and it retained that doctrine of offensive warfare um, as the best and ideal way of defeating and destroying an enemy. 
The consequence of this for the Cold War then was this enormous sense of threat in the West that the, the whole purpose of the Soviet military machine was to project military and then political power um, beyond the borders of the Soviet Union um, with very little, I think, very little overt recognition, certainly, of um, the underlying reasons why that mindset had evolved. And to give you some idea of, of just the scale of the devastation and the damage, um, some years ago, uh, about six years ago, in fact, uh, my wife and I visited uh, St. Petersburg, and we went to uh, Selo, which is one of the old imperial palaces at the southern edge of the city. Uh, and this area was actually behind German lines during the siege of Leningrad. And as the, uh, as the Germans retreated, they dynamited the whole building. Mm. Um, it's been pretty much rebuilt since. Um, and when we were shown around the building, there, there was one very, very large room at one end of the palace, and our guide took us into it, and the walls are completely bare. And she said, we haven't got around to redoing this one yet. Mm. And you think how many decades later this is, and yet, and yet this great palace still has areas awaiting reconstruction. And then you multiply that out across the entire country and you can understand completely their desire never ever to fight another war at home again. Yes, I can understand that. The book is called The Reckoning, The Defeat of Army Group South, 1944. Prit, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be Colonel Keith Nightingale, author of Just Another Day in Vietnam. It was just morning, and you, you could see it. He was probably less than 200 feet above me. And it, he had just triggered uh, a pair of 500-pound bombs. Mm. And I looked up at that instant and saw the air brakes from the bombs right on top of me and I'm saying, holy <laughs> you know, I, I'm about to die here. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, please share the show on social media and follow me on Twitter, at Rob Child. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group. I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today. And thank you for your support.